Thank you for listening to the podcast of Dublin Bible Church. All right, if you are a go-getter, go get John 3, verse 1 through 4. If you're not, that's fine. We're going to cover those in just a couple of minutes. We're starting a new series called Uprising. We will be here for the rest of the month of November, kind of talking about the ideas of faith. And specifically today, we are talking about there's four stages of faith. Now, these four stages, I'm just going to be honest with you, I'm not like the most creative guy as far as these four stages. And you would sit back and say, wow, look at what Chad came up with. Because Chad didn't come up with these, actually. These four stages have kind of been reiterated and proven through time, and people have used different words to explain them. But one of the, uh, the things that really spoke to me was from a gentleman by the name of Henry Cloud, which is a Christian author. If you have, uh, he's written a ton of books. I think one of his most popular books is called Boundaries. I haven't read it. Don't ask me about it. I don't know a single thing. I just know that he wrote it. It's called Boundaries. Dr. Henry Cloud, he is a, a, a Christian clinical psychologist. I don't even know what that means, but I'm pretty sure that means he can prescribe medicine for something. But I'm not really sure what that means. But what he had, had talked about was the their people, every group of people, we are in one or we are in several stages of faith. And he said that there are four distinct stages. And one thing that, that really I was drawn to, and it helped me to understand some things that have happened in my life, and I hope there would be something that would resonate with you to help you make sense of maybe where you are right now, or maybe where you've been, or the reality is maybe where you're going to be going in the future, is... If these four stages and you sit back and if you could kind of peer into a circumstance or a stage of life to know, okay, I'm, I'm in this stage in this event. Oh, I was in this stage in this event. If we would understand where we are in the stages, I believe it will help us to understand how to get to victory in those stages. Are we clear on that, church? We good so far? Shake your head if you're in agreement or if you don't even know what I said. Awesome. You're kind. Um, but this also, one of the things that really spoke to me is I'm one of those people, I sit back and I kind of not, not like evaluate people or judge people because, you know, we're not really supposed to do that. That's kind of what Jesus said and we kind of try and do everything that Jesus said to do and what he said not to do, we try not to do. But one of the things I sit back and look at people and I'm absolutely blown away when I see an individual or a family go through a very just a tragic time in their life. Or they go through this, this, it seems like such a devastating moment in their life, and yet they can sit back and they can even praise God while they're going through it. Has anyone ever seen somebody do that? Raise your hand if you have. And you sit back and say, I cannot even believe that they're, they're reacting in the way that they are. That in, in essence, they're actually growing closer to God where... We're on the outside and we would think to ourselves, if I were in the midst of that storm, I don't know what I would do. And I firmly believe that if we were to, that we, if we all kind of take in these four stages of faith, that it will help us lend to say, okay, I'm in, I'm in this stage in this event, but I know where I want to be. But I'm not going to let the cat out of the bag just yet and tell you what all those stages are. Um, I'll start with the first one. It seems like a good place to start, doesn't it? Stage one. This is a stage 
every single one of us is either in today or we've been in in the future. The first stage that was talked about is non-faith or self-rule. Basically, in the non-faith side, we don't have faith in God. We are, in essence, God. That we do things because we like to do them. We're not compelled to live any certain way because the Bible says so or this person says so or I talked to a very religious person one day, they said so or my neighbor said so or this is, there's a really nice person at work and, and all of these things. We rule our life in this stage. We have all been there, the non-faith side. We, unfortunately, every one of these stages outside of the last one is, is kind of pushed along into another stage with a crisis. And this, the non-faith or self-rule side, the crisis that, that you endure with this is a crisis of meaning, purpose, and uncertainty. The crisis of meaning, purpose, and uncertainty. Because if, if we rule, and if, if we're at a place of non-faith in God, and if we rule, we, we understand, and the Bible tells us actually in Ecclesiastes 3.11, that God has put eternity into our hearts. That each and every one of us has this longing for something bigger than this. As great as this is, yet there's, there's this longing in our hearts for something greater than the temporal. Something greater than what you can achieve here on earth, whether it's possessions or, or power or gain through, through influence of people. That God has put in, in eternity into our hearts. Into all of our hearts. So we, in this stage, we have this crisis. And the only way that we can move to the second stage is if we understand what this crisis is and we come to a place of understanding, a, a crisis of meaning. Because we, if we're really honest, because of, and I believe what the Bible says, that when, you know, really, Solomon is like the wisest man to ever live, is what the word says. So it's like Ecclesiastes 3.11, and Solomon is the guy who wrote that. And he's saying that God has put eternity into our hearts, this longing for purpose, a longing for meaning, a longing for more. That it's greater than just this. It's greater than just what we can have in this situation. It's greater than what, what, we, can, than what we can achieve in life. And yet, we know this. There, there's one way, and you've probably heard this. I've heard people say, specifically, when somebody moves on beyond this life, and they step into what, whatever eternity waits them, right? It's either eternity or, or rather, it's either, it's either heaven or it's, finish it. Glad I didn't have to say that word. It's one of two places, and like eternity is in our hearts, like we're going to one of these two places, and yet we know this, even people who aren't walking with Christ, they say these words. When somebody passes on, they say, well, they're in a better place. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever heard somebody that is so far away from God, and when they pass on and the family looks upon the person that has died and they say, well, they're in a better place. Have you ever heard that? And I hate to say, you know what? They're not necessarily in a better place. This could be the greatest thing. If somebody's not walking with Jesus, this could be the greatest thing that they experience because life beyond this one, separated from God, is no place where that you want to be. And yet, we hear these words, well, they're in a better place. The reason why they say this is because they, they, they have eternity in their hearts and they say, well, they're in a better place. It's got to be better than this. Got to be better than, than working 
40 plus hours a week. It's got to be better than pay, paying bills. It's got to be better than, than pain. It's got to be better than, you know, planners, warts, and whatever else we have to deal with here. But the reality is, that's not the case. And yet we have to come to a place, and this is what we see in John 3, to transition from non-faith to, to self-rule is really a huge leap. And this is, a, this is a big transition. This is somebody going from non-Christian, and if you're a non-Christian and you're like skeptical of things of the Bible, that is absolutely fine because there's a, a little bit of skeptic in every one of us because we don't have it all figured out. We're just all on a quest trying to find more truth and meaning, aren't we? And yet, if, if, you're, if you're a non-Christian... You live in this world, but to go from what, what the Bible terms as death, that's separation from God, and then life, which would be eternity with God, we have to have this experience, and the experience that I, I will talk about from John 3, verses 1 through 4. Pretty straightforward. I'll give you just a little bit of the context. There's a couple words here. Um, that I, I really want us to be drawn to, one of which is, is a Pharisee. If you don't know what a Pharisee is and you haven't been in church and Sunday school and done all of that, that's cool. Um, a Pharisee is basically like a religious leader, but it's not like somebody who, who even believes in Jesus. As a matter of fact, many of the Pharisees opposed Jesus in his time. They thought that they had it all figured out, and they didn't they knew there was something special and distinct about Jesus, but it, it, wasn't, it wasn't to the point where they were willing to give up their power and prestige and then to surrender to his authority. So they kind of stood in opposition to Jesus. And then another one, it says that he came to Jesus at night, which we'll talk about that in just a second. That has a very important distinction here. This is what it says, verses 1 through 4. I'll just read it all the way through. Now there was a man of the Pharisees. We talked about that named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one can perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. That's a good question. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born, because that would be weird. That was uh, my emphasis there at the end. The Bible doesn't actually say that, if you didn't read that. Um, at the beginning of this, it talks about that he was a Pharisee, and that normally the Pharisees, and he was of the, the Jewish ruling council, so that means normally the group that he would side with were in direct opposition to Jesus, and yet he came to Jesus at night. Well, why would he go to Jesus at night is what you're wondering, aren't you? The reason why he would go to Jesus at night is so nobody would see him. Because he was going to Jesus not as some... He was going to Jesus for, for a, a deeper meaning. He was having a crisis of meaning. He was having a crisis of purpose in his life. And he knew that, that something was wrong. And he was overly religious. And he did all the right things as far as he was concerned. And he said all the right things as far as he was concerned. And he, he went to church and he sang the songs. And he, and he, told, he told people about, about his faith and all these things. And yet he came to a place of understanding where he knew there was more. It was a crisis. And Jesus uses these two words, and if you're, if you're not a Christian this morning, these two words probably appear to you weird like they did him, this, these words. He says, I tell you the truth, that no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is 
born again. And then he makes a remark, show that he doesn't understand. He's like, to be born again, he's like, um, all right, I'm a full-grown man, and you're asking me to go in there and do that thing, and like, do you see how this is going to be complicated? And Jesus would continue in the rest of that text, and he says, I'm not talking about a, a natural birth. We all undergo a natural birth. We all undergo this non-faith or self-rule where we, in essence, are God. And Jesus is, is pushing against Nicodemus a little bit, and he says, I know you have it all figured out. I know that you think you have all the answers, but the only way that you can be made right is not to, to be naturally born again, but to be supernaturally born again. What? He's saying this is a matter of, of spiritual rebirth. Things start to click for Nicodemus. And he says, okay, to be born again. So, okay, the natural thing, I get the complications there. I'm, I'm not a tall guy, but I, you know, it's awkward and weird. And we would all agree. But he says, now this is, he uses these two words that really, in, in, in modern culture, they kind of, they have a, kind of a, I don't know, they bring bitterness to, in, into people's minds when you hear the words born again. If you're a Christian and you hear born again, you don't understand what that means. But if you're not a Christian and you hear the words born again, it almost has a negative connotation at times. But what Jesus is trying to clear clear all of the, the confusion. He understands that there's the crisis that, that exists in Nicodemus. And he says, Nicodemus, you have to stop trying to do it all yourself because you're incapable of, of putting eternity into your own heart. It's, it's impossible for you to have this crisis of meaning and purpose and, re- and still to be able to rely on yourself. He says you need to be born again. And he would continue and he talks about light and darkness. And he says the only way that you can step into the light is by, by can, this basically coming before God and saying, I'm a sinner, I'm in need of, of some reconciliation for my sin and, and asking him to come into your life and save you. This is what Jesus would tell him later in this text. And we see the transition from from self-rule or non-faith. Now the big transition happens after you've been been born again. You've gone from death, and I've talked about that, to life. Life with Christ. Eternity with Christ. Eternity in heaven. Or, as my friend said recently, eternity with air conditioning. You know, that. Now this side is... Or this, rather, the next stage, this is where a lot of Christians spend their life. Stage two is this, the institutional or external faith is what Dr. Cloud had said, this institutional faith. Now, this is where Christians really get weird, if I'm honest, like really get weird. This is when somebody just gets saved and they start getting, they start getting involved in church and their hair starts to be parted on the side and then like the longer you're a Christian, the farther the part goes over here, right? I'm just kidding. Everybody who has parted hair is getting nervous right now. But it's like Christians get weird and they, and they dress a little bit weird and then they start using words that I consider to be Christianese, which a non-Christian doesn't understand. Like, you know, you say brother and sister, they think you're talking about Hulk Hogan from like the 80s wrestling days. Like they have no idea what that means. And many of you don't know what that means either, but that's neither here nor there. And so you start using these words that are Christianese and they become a foreign language. And that becomes problematic. Because the more we become institutionalized Christians, the more comfortable we get in situations like this. And and the more that we sit in these kind of environments, the less we get 
Or rather, the, the farther we get off mission from what Christ did warn us to do. There, there are some problems with even this stage of faith. And yet, in this stage, there are some very critical things that we understand and we have to kind of learn. It's in this stage that many of you have stayed. Listen to me clearly. If you've been in church for years, this is, you need to hear this. Many of you, this is your Sunday school answer. This is when every question you have, the answer is Jesus, right? Like, how can you do that? Jesus. Well, how do you know that? Jesus. Where are you? Jesus. Wait a minute, wrong answer. I don't know. Like the whole institutional faith is you start to get all these Sunday school answers. You start reading your Bible, and I believe you should. You start praying, and you start doing all these things, and we kind of live our life. Much of our Christian life, we live right here. And we live it right here. And we, we learn all of the, the Christian disciplines. And I pound these into you I, with, without mercy. I pound them into you and tell you that you need to do that. And I will continue to. Because the things that you learn in this stage of faith are critical for what you're going to endure in the later stages of faith. But yet in this side, this is where a lot of Christians stay. This is where a lot of Christians stay. And what is incredibly sad about this stage is the crisis that projects you into the next stage is very hard to take because there's many times that we're in this stage and we're told as as new christians or long-term christians or non-growing christians or comfortable christians or off-mission christians we're told just pray just read your bible just go to church just get in a small group Just start serving. And yet, the thing that projects us into the next stage, which is the desert faith stage, this stage, you can't pray things away in this stage. You can't Bible study your way out of this stage. You can't exegete a text in in, in the, the, the purest Greek that we have to take the pain away in in this stage. You can't do it. So you start questioning things and you start doubting things and you say, God, is that really what it is? I mean, I'm praying, but I I, I believe that you're with me, but I'm I'm not necessarily receiving that. I have a a really hard time receiving what, what, what I'm experiencing right now and I still have this pain and I still have these doubts and God, where are you? I'm in the desert right now. What do I do with this? And we can't Bible study the, pray, or the, the pain away. And we can't go to small group. We have, this, we have the thing that just burdens us every single day. Who's ever been there? Who's ever been there? And what do you do? What do you do? There's good news. There's good news of things that happens here. Because when you're in desert faith, one thing, there's going to be four things in this, in this specific stage that I, I really want you to get. There are four things that happens. If you're in a desert faith, God is there with you. Don't believe that you're alone. God is there. God is there with you. Isaiah 59.1 says this, and I love, I love this text. It's on the screen. You don't have to flip there. It says, listen, the Lord's arm is not too weak to save you, nor is his ear deaf to hear your call. That Isaiah says, hey, yeah, you're in the desert, but God is with you. What, does he have like T-Rex arms? Can he not reach you? Like you're, you're just so far away. That looks pathetic, doesn't it? 
It's like, does, but isn't that pathetic? That's how we treat God. Like, God, if, you, if your arms were just a little bit longer, you'd be able to reach me. And yet the reality is God has the biggest arms you've ever seen. He has like go-go gadget arms. He can, he can reach you wherever you are, whatever the stage of the desert that you're in. God is there with you. God is there with you. This is so important for us to understand because as we go through things, and as Christians, you know what, if you're a non-Christian or Christian, we all go through things. We all do. And yet, we, we have things, the, the circumstances and pain and loss, and we have, the, you know, we have the, the husband and wife who comes to us and says, I want a divorce, and like, what do you do with that? And all of a sudden, you're in the desert, and you feel like you're alone, but you're not. Because God is there. And as Isaiah says, God's arms are not too short to save you. And his ears are not deaf to hear you call. He hears you. So you're in the desert and you're praying and you think, God, where are you? You're not responding. He's not deaf to your call. He's just prepping for what what he's going to do. He's prepping you for what he's going to do. And yet God is there. And this is, this is something else that we have. This is taken right from the Lord's Prayer. Daily bread matters. You remember this? Give us today our daily bread from Matthew 6. And yet, daily bread matters. And, and the reason why this is up there is because you may not be able to see tomorrow, but God gives you, He'll give you the daily bread for today. You may not be able to see tomorrow and you may not know what to do tomorrow and you don't necessarily have a, have a, a, a one-year plan and a two-year plan, like how am I going to get through this situation? And yet the reality is God is there and he gives you daily bread and it really matters because it's sustaining. It's sustaining that you have that, you have that in the moment, that you have it for today. You see, if he gave you in this, and listen to me, if you're in the desert faith and he just gave you everything you possibly needed, you would not be able to, you would rather, you would not rely on him at the way that he wants you to. That's why it has to be daily bread that he gives you what you need for the day. Because you go through the desert, it's not only to get you through the circumstance, but it's to teach you something in the circumstance. To teach you that he's bigger. To teach you that he's there. Teach you that that even, even outside of that desert faith, that you still need to rely on Him every day. What I think is just incredible about the thing of desert faith, there are moments in my life where I absolutely, I don't have to question God on it, and I feel like, I, like I'm, I'm good with God in this certain area, like I have total faith in this one area, like God, I trust you, I trust you, I trust you, and yet over here, there's something that is just so weighty to me that I have such a hard time of trusting God with. That is so complex in my mind that I can't even, I can't even perceive why that is. And yet, we have this promise that God is there even in our desert, even in our, our, our lack of understanding. That he's there, that he's present with us. That he's not just patting us on the back and he says, okay, Scooter, go along. Once you get out there a little bit, I'll be there to help you. He says, no, we're arm in arm. I'm, I'm there with you. I'm, I'm leading you in this. Come on, let's go. I know you're in the desert, but you're not alone in the desert. But I'm going to give you enough today to sustain you today in this moment, in this time. And there's more. This is something that is not really taken advantage of as much 
as what we should. That God brings his church. God brings his people along. You're in the desert. He brings his church. The reason why we pound this, and I say this, and it totally sounds like Sunday school, we say, you know, if if you're a Christian, non-Christian seeker, whatever the case may be, we want you to come here on Sunday mornings. It's not so that we can pat our attendance or the staff could pat themselves on the back and say, wow, you did a really good job today. We really filled the seats today. It's we know that every single person in this room, at some point, if you become a Christian, you're going to be in the desert. Things are going to happen and that are not going to make sense. And you are going to have to do something in the desert and rely on the very principles that you learn in stage two, in the institutional side. That he brings his church along while you're in the desert. That God is there. He gives you enough to sustain you. The daily bread matters. And he brings his church. He brings his church to to help pull you along and pat you on the back. To give you a meal when you're hurting to take you out to lunch when we have to have a conversation. That's what God does. He doesn't just leave you in the desert. If you remember like the Sunday school story about the Israelites when they're in the desert, was God with them in the desert? He was, wasn't he? They didn't always see him. They didn't always appreciate him, but he was there. He's in our desert too. And this is even... This is some, I mean, you could be a Christian 30, 40 years and still have a, a, a desert faith experience. To where, yeah, okay, I know where, where I am with eternity, and yet I can't pray this away. I can't Bible study this away. I can't attend church enough to make this go away. And yet God is saying, I'm with you. I'm giving you enough to sustain you. And I want you to be with my people, with his church I want you to be with my people to help sustain you in this situation. That you're not alone. And we see that God also keeps his promises. Isaiah 49, 13 says it like this. For the Lord comforts his people and will give compassion on his afflicted ones. This is one of the promises of God. So we rely on the promises of God. We're in the desert. And you say, Lord, that that you're never going to forget me. You're never going to turn your back on me. I need that right now. I need this today. It says in in Isaiah 49.13 that you're going to comfort me and you're going to be compassionate. Like, Lord, I'm afflicted. I feel like I've been wronged here. I'm in a bad situation. And I need something of you. And yet we have these promises. So we have the presence of God while we're in the desert, that God is there with us. He gives us the daily bread, enough for today, maybe not enough for tomorrow, certainly not enough for a week from now, but he's, he's there in the midst of it right now. And yet we just continues on. He has his people. This is why he left the church here. If not, if not after somebody who's gone from death to life and they've been, they've been born again and talk about spiritual rebirth, This is the reason, one of the reasons why God leaves his church here on earth. To be a support system for other Christians. If not, God could have said, wow, all right, yeah. You want to live, you would like to live the rest of your life by my principles. And he could have just taken us up, couldn't he? But he didn't. He left us here. He left us here for for other purposes, for a service. Because it's God's grace to the world, but also it's God's grace to us to comfort one another. And the crisis that moves us into stage four is this. 
you come to a, cri- a point in your crisis where you're, you're doing the right things as a Christian. You're trying to be the right person as a Christian. You're trying to believe the right things as a Christian. And you realize that you still can't do it yourself. That's the crisis. You still can't do it yourself. Because you still can't Bible study the pain away. You still can't pray the pain away. You can't attend small group enough to make it go away. You can't bring your kids to church enough to make it go away. And God says, you're in the desert. I'm there with you. I'm giving you daily bread that really matters. I'm going to send my church. I've given you my promises. And yet we still have this crisis that we can't change it ourselves. And this is a, a very, very amazing thing to see happen in someone's life. When they go from stage three to stage four, incredible things happen. In stage three to stage four, the crisis that brings into stage four leads you to a worshipful faith. Where you sit back and you've had all these things occur to you. You've had all of these challenges kind of pressing on you. And you realize, you know what? Things are starting to make sense. That I'm not supposed to just pray these things away. I'm supposed to worship God even in, this, in the midst of my circumstance. And if you've ever seen somebody go through just what would seem like a gut-wrenching situation in their life and you would sit back at them and say, Wow, how in the world did you get through it? The reason why we're so compelled when we look at Christians who, who overcome obstacles is because they are in a worshipful faith. That they're in a worshipful faith and we sit back and we say, wow, how? I don't even understand. And all of a sudden, when you realize at the point where you have this crisis where you can't do it yourself and you truly submit to God, what happens is this. When you pray, it is enough to sustain you. The things that you learn in Sunday school and all of the times like this and all of the disciplines, the the personal Christian disciplines, the things that, that you learned early in your walk with Christ and we continually pound here at this church, all of those things, you start to have God's promises jump off the, the text, the same text that maybe you've read before. And now all of a sudden you have a promise. And now that promise becomes your daily bread. Do you get this? And now the promise that you read, because we've told you over and over and over again when you're in stage two, the institutional faith, read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible. And it sounds like we're talking to, you know, to eight-year-olds. It's like the reason why is we know that you're going to be in the the desert faith. And when you're in the desert faith, I don't want you to sit back and withdraw away from the church and withdraw away from God. We want you to go to stage four. Four, which is the worshipful side and saying, God, I don't know how, but I'm trusting that you do. And then when we pray, God sustains. When we do read our Bible, we see God's promises. And those promises become the very lifeblood of us to keep going day by day and saying, God, I don't understand why, but I'm worshiping. I don't understand when, but I'm worshiping. I don't know when I'm going to get out of this this debt situation, but I'm worshiping. And and I'm trying to be obedient right now in this situation. I don't understand the full outcome of everything that I'm enduring, but I know that what what I'm going through right now is to develop me for who you want me to be later. And here's another side of this part of this part 
there are part of stage four that becomes sticky. Because then, when, when a Christian goes through a, a very hard and difficult and just gut-wrenching circumstance, and other Christians see that they're worshiping in it, and God brings his church along, we're compelled to do the same. Because we realize that we're powerless over the situation. See, if you're Christian, non-Christian, wherever you are in the mix, we've all been at stage one. We've all been there. And we've all been God in our own lives. We've, we had parents that told us things like, you can do whatever you want, or, you know, or, somebody, or somebody says, you can do whatever you strive to do or you want to do. And you know what? That's not reality. I mean, I'm 5'7", with the hair 5'8", with the shoes 5'9". I'm never going to be an NBA center if I want to be, right? So some parts of that become not true after a while. You can't become whatever you want to become. You can't. I want to tell you about, in closing, the bank can come up. I want to tell you a story. I had a... I've had very defining moments in my life, but this moment specifically, and I think I've talked about this a little bit, but I'm going to tell you from a different angle. I had a, a situation in my life, my life rather, happen years ago to where it was, it was, I was already a Christian. I'd already been told to do the whole Bible study and pray and small group and Sunday school and all of the, you know, attend church and all these things, and yet I had a crisis. The crisis that I had in this moment was job loss. It wasn't like JJ in good times, you know, temporary layoff. This was like the for real deal. This was complete layoff. This was see ya, send you pack, and have a good life. Everything that I had worked for, I had gotten a degree to do this. I had had experience to do this. This was my idea of the American dream. And in a moment, at 10 o'clock in the morning, it was gone like that. What do you do when that happens? Well, I can tell you what happened in my situation. God's people wrapped their arms around me to help me. God gave me enough, not only financially, but he gave me enough spiritually to, to handle it moment by moment. I knew that God was with me even in the midst of that circumstance. And the very promises that I was trying to cling to, and that at the moment, or in those times, I was actually teaching little kids, and I was teaching them God's promises. All of, because, all of a sudden, I became the student. He became the teacher. To where now, I'm, I'm reading these promises, and they're giving me strength. And I was in the institutional side. I was in the desert. And in the moment, and in, in, just in the course of a 45-minute drive, I went through three of those stages. It doesn't always take years. Sometimes it's moments. And when I went from a place of crisis of, I don't know what to do, I've got, I've got no future here, and what is going on? In an instant, it appeared that God said, you know what? Yeah. Just worship me. And I'll take care of it. And you know what? That has been like my magic carpet ride that God has taken me and taken my family on for years now. But it all started in that moment. Going through those stages of faith to help me understand what God wanted me to understand. That I needed to rely on Him. Because He knew that I was inclined to rely on me. 
and that's not sustaining. 